0: This is Manifest Mindset, where we delve into our true passions, inspire the best out of ourselves, and live our life with true intention every single day. Okay, Bob, so you're throwing out this um, idea of placebo and nocebo, and I know that placebo, we've kind of all kind of heard that word before, whether it's in reference to medical experiments or um, some kind of bizarre psychology we might have read about in the newspaper or an online article, but. For all of our listeners out there, can you define or at least define based on your experience with this reading um what you believe post- placebo and nocebo to be?
1: Yeah, I mean well, let's go back to, to like what you said, like the the psychology experiment, the the, the wacko experiment in the movies and books. So basically um there's two groups of subjects. One group's uh one group comes in the, the both of them come in with like the flu and uh one group gets an actual pill, the other group gets a pill that's just a sugar pill. And both of them believe that they will get better if they take the pill. So they take the pill, a few days go by, and group A that took the the actual medicine got better. But also group B, who took the sugar pill, also got better because of this placebo effect that the the person believed that they would get better, so they they got better.
0: Gotcha. So Bob, you're talking about the positive expectations of anticipating getting better so you get better because of that now you brought up a really um interesting example because if you've got the flu you're throwing up curling all over the place you can't keep any food down so it's interesting that you brought up huh i'm taking this medicine inside my gut that i'm going to throw up anyway and somehow i magically get better so uh it's another twist another uh magical layer onto the story
1: yeah it's like something not many people think about but then once like you actually think about, your mind is like, what is going on? What, what do you mean things like placebo and nocebo can actually affect me as a person?
0: Absolutely, Bob. Now, now tell us about nocebo. How is that different?
1: So it, it's the opposite effect of placebo. So uh, you get a positive benefit from having this belief that you're doing something. That's placebo. But then nocebo is the opposite effect. You get um, a negative side effect. You get a negative consequence. Um from doing something because you believe it will harm you or others believe that it will harm you.
0: Um, Absolutely, And you know, this, this can be as, as simple as taking a basketball shot and thinking in your head, I'm never going to make this. So guess what you miss, or it can be as severe as a, um, an old study that was done of cancer patients. And, um, uh, it's not ethical to do anymore, but a true chemotherapy versus a placebo chemotherapy for early stage cancer and trying to figure out, okay, what is going to be more effective? Is chemotherapy actually effective? Or is it uh, partially about placebo effect and figuring that out? A side effect that they were not anticipating occurring was, Bob, in the group that received the uh, placebo chemotherapy, the chemotherapy that wasn't actually it, kind of a fake treatment. Guess what happened? They, they lost their hair. Yes. Oh, I already told you this, didn't I? No, you didn't. <laughs> I just assumed. But, oh, cool. well, pre- fantastic guess, my friend. That's exactly what happened. They lost their hair. Oh,
1: huh. is, is that, did that really happen? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's the power of this, the power of our minds.
0: And and, and the power of Bob Chang's lucky guessing intuition.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, that reminds me of, of another study that I read in a book that I don't know where I read. It. I think it was seven <laughs> habits of highly affected people. But basically there was this guy who volunteered. Um, I think he was actually a prisoner, and they put a mask over him, and they pretended to to cut his throat. Um, they didn't actually cut his throat, but they pretended to cut his throat, and they turned on the sound of scientists or the researchers or pri- the prison guards, whoever you want to call it, they turned on the sound of dripping blood, uh, even though there was no cut, there was this sound of dripping blood down on the floor, and eventually, after a few hours, the guy just just died, even though there was no cut. Even though wow. there was no physical harm or anything, it was just this guy believing that he lost all his blood because um, because of this nocebo effect. So this this thing we're talking about right here is a life or death uh, <laughs> kind of ideology. ideology. So absolutely, and Bob, that, that's
0: so powerful to think about that that you know it makes us take it, at least for me personally, it makes me take a step back and question. Everything I thought I knew, everything I thought I understood, and, you know, the true power that the mind has in itself, and how can we leverage that and use that for the best for ourselves and our patients and our friends and our community?
1: Yeah, so if we were going to go back to the physical therapy side of things about this placebo and nocebo thing, um, one thing that has been brought to my mind, and I've been really thinking about, like, that, that whole mind blown experience, is this question about, all the research studies that are, are going on for, for physical therapy, like all the research studies that are going on for um, medical science, things like that, how much of the the positive benefits that come up from the study, like somebody getting better from doing bridges and exercise for low back pain, how much of that is the intervention and how much of that is the patient's expectations towards the intervention?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there are countless studies out there that directly link it to that, Bob, where the the patients who have favorable treatment or uh, self-select to be in a certain group or that, you know, like you said, you have a, they have a preconceived notation to go ahead and do that. There's research to support that, hey, that's going to be much more effective that way. I mean, if yeah. you go down to um, the use of ultrasound, not diagnostic ultrasound, but ultrasound as a modality to, in theory, create local tissue heat the change of chemical inflammation and everything. Um, There are studies out there that say that ultrasound does have a positive effect. However, the positive effect of ultrasound is the same whether the machine is plugged in or not plugged in. Yes. So it's all about the patient expectation and what they are expecting to receive. I still have not been bold enough yet to treat anybody with ultrasound in the clinic without the machine plugged in. (laughs) <laughs> um, then again, I haven't used ultrasound as a treatment in the clinic for probably two years for good reason. Um, I'll, I'll pull it off one day and, uh, we'll see what happens out of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> ultrasound is an interesting thing. I, I haven't, did your clinic right now have ultrasound?
0: Um, yes, we technically do. And some of the therapists like using it, um, for certain stages of a little bit of, uh, heel pain once in a while but um it's very very rare.
1: Yeah. So there there was also this other study that I I'm not going to quote their name because I don't remember their name um but I think it was actually Julia Fritz with with the expectation studies. I, I honestly don't know, but um the, there was the results basically what what they found was it's not only that the patients patient expectations that determine the outcomes of the the treatment or whatever it's also the clinician's expectations that really impact the the outcomes of the patient. So if if, a, if the therapist believes that ultrasound is going to work, and the patient believes ultrasound is going to work, it's a good chance that it might help. That that it's going to help help with uh, whatever the patient comes in with. So I find that that's super interesting.
0: It, it is Bob, and you know this is um, there are countless studies like that that cited for different forms of manual therapy. Um, and it's interesting to think about, hey, is it more effective because of the way the therapist communicates that, um, even if they try and have a non-biased approach to their subtle communication? Or is it because, hey, they believe in that more, so that's what they've been trained in, that's what they practice in even more? Um, so it's interesting considering all the possibilities, but certainly kind of the important concept is how can we have self-selection by both the therapist and the patient um, to really maximize Um, the placebo effect and something that, you know, one of my professors, you know, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Costello. um, He talks a lot about, you know, do good treatment, do the best you can. Also part of that is how can you ethically maximize the placebo effect for your patients?
1: Yes. I don't want to say like you want to manipulate, but it's kind of like you're strategically manipulating the patient to enhance this placebo effect. I don't know if you feel the same way, but, but that's, that's what sometimes I feel like.
0: And as you think want- I think it's a fine border, bot because, you know, we talk about this idea of motivational interviewing and getting the patient to kind of realize the road we need to go down and all of a sudden they're the ones behind the steering wheel and um, they're not passively relying on this anymore. So I think it, I think it's a very fine line because you certainly want to be um, ethical. You never want to lie to a patient. Um, you want to be up front and kind of share with them the options at hand. But, yeah, but on on the on the on the other hand you want to again maximize expectations.
1: Yeah. Yes, I agree. So today um so you, you know how like over the summer I'm, I'm working, um I'm helping out at my mom's clinic. Basically I, I I'm just the the store manager or whatever you want to call it. Um yeah. so there's there's an exponential there. there's there's a few massage people, massage therapists there. Um, and today somebody came in with, um, swollen, swollen legs, swollen legs. That's that's all. She, she's relatively young. She, she has swollen legs for the past 10 plus years. Um, she's been to the doctor. She got an x-ray. She got, uh, MRIs. Um, and they don't know what's, what's wrong. Um, and what the doctor told her was just to wear compression sleeves, and or compression socks. And she's been wearing that for the past nine or ten years. Um, and her swelling almost is exclusively in the summer, like when it's hot outside. Um, mm. So she came in to for acupuncture. She came in to see if uh, the, the acupuncturist can see what exactly is wrong with with her. Um, so you know how like acupuncturist and Doctors in America, they have different philosophies. They have different belief systems. Um,
0: Absolutely different patterns of clinical observation, like yeah. different signs and symptoms and patterns that both influence what the intervention is going to be.
1: Yeah. And so the the acupuncturist looked at looked at her leg, did some palpations, looked at her her pulse, um, all of those different things. And and what he concluded was that he. Sh- Right now, she, she shouldn't be using the compression sleeve. She, she shouldn't be. Um, she should be avoiding things that are cold and windy. So basically, there's there's like this this philosophy of of uh, yin and yang, and then there's this unbalance from the cold and hot. Um, I don't know much details about it, but um, she recommended the, the, the acupuncture. Just recommended to not wear compression sleeves when she, when she's getting acupuncture treatment during the time she's getting acupuncture treatment. And in my mind I was like, wait, but, but if if her leg's swelling, shouldn't she be putting on compression sleeves? Shouldn't she be elevating her legs? Um doing things like that. And and I so I asked I asked the acupuncturist and it was like there's no one exact way. Um uh, there's just there's multiple belief systems, but there's no one exact way. Um and now and now that I told the story, I don't know how this relates to what we were talking about, but but I don't know if that made any sense. Thanks.
0: No, it did, Bob, and it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, let me think of the exact words I want to use. It's really interesting with these different um, belief systems and how they can influence it, and I really enjoy how, you know, we can talk about this. It's different forms of science, different forms of observation about clinical patterns and what we can do to influence that um and it's it is interesting with the acupuncture system about the meridian balancing about the chi balancing and the five different elements that influence it but you know somebody i was talking to a while ago with um who is was a uh, talking more about because i'm older chinese medicine and they were saying you know food all food is in balance its as the nutrients and everything and there were times where this person this practitioner would actually recommend having like a couple bites of like a potato chip or a Frito or something crazy like that, where it's like, really? You want me to be having fried food? But Like my impression of this stuff is like, no, this is all natural food. It's all in balance. Um, but they said, no, like this, it's all about balance. So so if it's out of balance, you can use like a fatty food like that once in a while to help restore balance. So it's really interesting. Some of our, again, our placebo or, um, preconceived notations of it or nocebo. And how that influences what the results might actually be. Yes.
1: I now, now that you brought that up, I, I think I know how to connect it to, to our topic. Um, so uh, you would say that that this lady has, has been in the healthcare system for for a long time, right? And that she hasn't really gotten any help. She hasn't really gotten any answers. For
0: like um, nine, nine or ten years, she was, she should at least have a mechanism for what's going on with the swelling or something. Yeah. That helps yeah. Get.
1: She, she does it, right? The, the doctor doesn't know what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, but then here comes this acupuncturist with this shine of hope and optimism of, oh, this may be this may be it. Um, and I think that that can cause that, that p- placebo effect that actually might help her in that. I, I think that relates. Yeah, I think that connects. Absolutely. And, the you story. know,
0: it could be far more than just the placebo effect as well. It could be good scientific knowledge and clinical practice behind it, too, but I agree that let's leverage the placebo effect to help people out, especially in those situations where they come to us saying, giving us a laundry list of everything else they've already tried that has not worked. You know, I think sometimes it's more, it's more ethical to provide that strong placebo effect for them to anticipate a positive outcome than it would be unethical to say, oh, just kind of neutral about it. It would be more unethical to give them a negative, a nocebo expectation.
1: Yes. So I, I mean, I personally, I, I experienced this nocebo effect and I talked about this before, like six months ago uh, on this podcast, but I'm sure you hold it, heard the story. I went to, I was squatting one day and then I hurt my knee. Um, it was just a sharp injury or is, uh, an acute injury. So basically just a few days that in you know, a sharp pain, um, and then I went to this orthopedic PT person and he told me once I walked in, he told, he looked at my knees and he said that I should never squat again and that squatting is a hobby. And if I continue to squat, um, I would dislocate my knee. Um, <laughs> and ever since then, like I, I know about the placebo effect, but, but it's still deeply imprinted in my mind of like, Oh my God, am, am I going to dislocate my knee? And, and to this day, My knee's still, my knee's still hurting. Now, now the pain's been going drastically down now that I understand all this like pain science stuff. But I, I had this pain for, I don't know, four years, four years for, for knee pain, which, well, it's, it's tendonitis, which is slow to heal, but, but four years that, I I feel like that goes into more of this chronic pain science kind of realm. Um, but I don't know. Um, but, but that's, that's my experience with nocebo. That that may not be, but it, it, it is nocebo. Um,
0: so, yeah. Yeah, right. And like you said, Bob, it you know, there very well may be a patho-mechanical rationale and reasoning for knee pain, for knee irritation, especially in your case with what's going on. But, however, in addition to that, there are also factors, like you said, about these negative outcomes, a lot of people instilling fear avoidance in you, um, and that definitely does influence, um, your expectation of that movement pattern.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. All right, do, do you want to go into <laughs> this article, Nick?
0: Yeah, all right, Bob, lead, lead the way. Let's get into this article.
1: Right. <laughs> this article is called Contemporary um, Biopsychosocial Exercise Prescription for Chronic Low Back Pain Questioning Core Stability Programs and Considering Context by Peter Stillway. Uh, Dr. Chiropractor, and Katarina Harmon, Um wait,
0: wait, Bob, can you say the title one more time? No, I'm kidding. Just not say that. Again. I got to. <laughs> All
1: right. But but um, it talks a lot about th- this idea of therapeutic alliance that we brought up, and it questions this idea of um, doing core exercises for for non specific chronic low back pain. Um and, and we all know like I guess from school that the like, chronic non specific low back pain is, is hard it's hard it's quote unquote harder to treat. I don't wanna bring some nocebo into this, but it's quote unquote harder to treat than, than regular two day acute back pain. Do you agree, Nick?
0: I would I would agree with that with the premise of it's harder than acute back pain, once the acuteness of that back pain kind of resolves and works itself out out of that acute phase of healing. Um, because yeah. there, there are some back where it's just so acute, you can't do a damn thing for it, except for to maybe have a person uh, lie down and get some anti inflammatory dose pack in there um, and make something calm down. But to your point, for the subacute back pain patient, um, you know, a week out or so compared to. The chronic pain patient. I mean, the reason that they're in chronicity is because they haven't found answers somewhere, and that can often lead to a continued nocebo effect along the way.
1: Yeah, there's this sense of of uncertainty of, am I ever going to get better? Is this going to be with me for the rest of my life? Um, am I going to just pop out of my back? My, my back just going to pop out of nowhere um, anytime? And and I think that the parallels with my my mindset. Currently with with my knee, of um, thinking, <laughs> I'm gonna dislocate my knee, which I know it's, it's not gonna happen. Um,
0: yeah, Bob, Bob, you better watch out the next time you uh, you you uh, go from standing up to to sitting down, <laughs> sitting down the toilet. Your kneecap's gonna fly up, it's gonna hit the doorknob <laughs> or something. Yeah, you're just so <laughs> unstable, Bob.
1: Oh man, but in, in reality, like the body is is such a, a sturdy and powerful and amazing thing. So. Um, I, I think the these nocebo the statements really brings
0: injustice
1: to what the body can do.
0: And now Bob, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little devil devil's advocate for us here because, you know, the pendulum is starting to in the physical therapy world and the medical world uh swing back a little bit. It was off, it was very highly biomechanical for a while and hence we had something missing in the spectrum. We had this biopsychosocial um, model come up to trying to understand, hey, it actually matters what the patient thinks, what they expect and all these other great things. But now we're starting to swing back to, you know, yes, that is true. Yes, the patient's expectation matters and how you communicate with them and all these other things, but biomechanics are still important. It's still important to have this understanding of where the body moves. I know for myself, I fell in the trap when I first started learning about this stuff. I'm like, I question, wait, all this other stuff that I've learned, does it even matter? And some of it, eh, maybe not as much to all situations. A lot of it still does matter. So I want to raise the importance and understanding that it is far more than just, hey, you know, what are your expectations? But we have to have sound reasoning and sound evidence behind that as well.
1: So I agree with you with that. So 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 my thought process is that um, it, it's a balance of both of both pathological stuff and, and the psychosocial stuff. Uh, because you, you can't just always tell a patient that it's the pain's in your head. Um, it's, it's, you're, you're thinking about it too much and stuff like that. Um, and, and I, I agree. Nick. But that's Absolutely. <laughs> and,
0: and I think it's, I think Bob, it's about the, um, the way we communicate that with the placebo and nocebo effect. It's about the, um, the subtleties of language, the subtleties of, of, um, appearance is not so much of, oh, okay, um, I'm telling you straight up exactly what it is, but it's in that kind of nonverbal communication or the subtleties of the verbal communication. So it's not so explicit and out there, but it's kind of like a, a repetitive, gentle nudge in the right direction.
1: Yeah. Um, going back to that more patho nature and, and what patho means is basically telling it is basically like the muscles, the bones, the tendons, uh, the things in the body that are not psychosocial, which is more like expectations, talking, stuff like that. Um,
0: right. So more is more of the structure of the body.
1: Yes. Um. If I were to play a little bit more devil's advocate on your devil's advocate for me, please. Um. I like if, if you see somebody's shoulder, right, and they have pain. How do you know what structures the issue? Like, how do you know what, like, what exact muscle, what exact tendon, what exact ligament, um, or, or you're not you're not really focused about that when it mm. comes to the anatomical nature of stuff.
0: Great question, Bob. I like that um, because it kind of my answer will draw out some uh, current struggles and concepts within it. Um, things I'm asking the patient and trying to find out, okay, what, how did this happen? When did it first start? What makes the pain better? What makes it more tolerable? What makes the pain worse? Understanding, okay, once it flares up, how long does it take to calm back down? What's the quality of pain? Is it throbbing? Is it aching? Is it numbness, tingling, sharp shooting, um, any of those type of Quality for the area. It's just really weak. I'll look at the way that they functionally move. I do um, both resistive and ligament tests, understanding that okay, you know they may have other ligamentous tension or laxity that is not correlated directly with their pain. They may have contractile weakness of muscles um, due to the fact of hey, I'm just in pain and I don't want to move it as much. And that's anticipated, so I can't do any one test to say, hey, this is the exact reason. But getting an understanding of, hey, is the irritation more of a capsular issue? Um, is it more of a contractile unit? Is it a non-contractile tissue? And figuring that out along the way, but you bring up a good point, especially in acute shoulder pain, the kind of quote-unquote special tests we use within physical therapy are, I don't want to say absolute BS, but basically what they tell you is, hey, my shoulder hurts. Guess what? The patient came in there, Bob, because their shoulder hurt. You don't need a special test to tell them. By the way, my shoulder hurts. It's pretty unspecific as far as to what actually hurts. So, can we always draw out? You know, what is the culprit? What is the um, the I will say the pain generator source was causing the pain? Not not always, um, because you know, but we can rule. What we can rule in and rule out is. Is this pain truly from the shoulder itself? Is it more joint? Is it more some of the structures around it? Is it more from the cervical spine in that area? Those are things that we can absolutely tease out. And from there work on the um, impairments at hand to work on the things that they need. So you don't yeah. always know the exact pathoanatomical structure. No, but I need to understand the principles of pathoanatomy to get out of the issue at hand.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's, <laughs> like I say, yeah. It's more so like from from what I hear, it's more so like a broader overview. Um, a a than... broader
0: a broader overview in understanding our limitations of fully understanding it. However, it's important to have the pathoanatomical knowledge and understanding and principles of movement behind our reasoning to say, okay, here's what is likely. Here's kind of my differential diagnosis in my mind, and. Is still good enough to treat this person without knowing what exactly is the pain generator as far as the structure that's producing the pain, or the driver of the um, issue of pathology? Because sometimes the main issue, the culprit at hand, is not the structure that's actually in pain.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, so taking understanding the, the general anatomy of the body, understanding the, the pathoanatomy of the body to be able to, to really figure out where the pain source is coming from. Is is that what?
0: Yes. And understanding that we don't always know exactly where it's coming from, but we still have these clinical signs and symptoms that we can, um, one test will doesn't tell us the damn thing, to be honest. But a cluster of tests together can give us a good indication of what to look for.
1: Yes, I agree. Um, I think where I was trying to play devil's advocate, for your devil's advocate was, was this idea of, of getting, getting lost. Well, well, before I say that, I, I think understanding the pathoanatomy uh, patho- anatomy really allows you to, to like create a good list of what the diagnosis or what the pain generator can be. Um, but then at the same time, it, it can be a good way to get lost in, in the weeds of, of the anatomy of the body. Like there, there's so many muscles, there's so many ligaments, um, so, the, so that's what I was trying to play. But, but then you brought up a good point that squashed my devil's advocate.
0: So. No, I, I appreciate that, Bob, for the sake of the argument. And I agree that, yeah, yes, we can go into the exact angle and rotation and exact pattern of every single ligament and every muscle fiber in there. But that's not an efficient examination. And does that relate to the patient's function? Not if you start out so extremely detailed and go through all those little details. You have to let – um the patient guide you, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in the idea. And actually this came up kind of, um, during my second clinical Bob, it was my first outpatient ortho clinical rotation. My CI was off doing something kind of the other side of the room, but, and I was talking to a patient and, you know, I, I said, I was talking to the patient, I forget, you know, what exactly was going on, but I basically said, yeah, you're right. Your body has an intuition for what it needs and it's my job to translate it. My CI was like, whoa, that's cool. And like, I'm like, yeah, I just made that shit up on the spot. But I didn't say shit in front of the patient. But that's kind of my belief, Bob, is that, you know, it's our job as not just physical therapists or acupuncturists or chiropractors, massage therapists, but as healers. Because physical therapy, that's a job with a great responsibility and it's a calling. But, and it's an important role to play. And that's how I express my vocation, my vocation as a healer. But to truly be a healer, I believe, is to translate the body's needs. And more than just the body, it, it brings up the psychosocial aspect, the spiritual aspect, too. But it's to help translate, to have that intuition through practice to dissect you know, that to people.
1: I, I really like that analogy because you could put that with, like, like you're translating different languages, right? You're translating English to Russian, English to Germany. German, uh, you're translating English to to Chinese, and you're translating the the body's, what was it, the body's intuition?
0: Yeah, again, kind of what I said was the body has an intuition for what it needs.
1: Yes. So, so like, a physical therapist will translate that intuition of what it needs to to physical therapy terms. A chiropractor will will translate the body's intuition to the, the chiropractor version of it then an acupuncturist will do the same thing, then an MD will do the, the same thing, and, and the list goes on, even though there's kind, the of best, kind of… Yeah, the best ahead.
0: clinicians, the best physicians are not just, hey, I'm in this bubble, in this bubble, in this bubble. They have a holistic approach. They understand the body as a whole and what systems are at play, what systems are at hand more than just, hey, this is my PT knowledge, hey, this is my chiropractic, this is my acupuncture, this is my medical doctor, orthopedic surgeon perspective. It's It's… What can I possibly bring to the table in the expression of the human experience and how does that guide my recommendation?
1: Now, I think something interesting that i may be thinking about is, is if we were to talk 10 years about this, um, in the future, um, it's most likely going to change like, like a million percent. Um, but, but I wonder what, which direction it's going to shift because at the end of every research article, research paper, there, there's always that one sentence that says there should be more research to be done in this area, and in all research papers, right? Um, so, I wonder where where this intuition of what the patient needs will go.
0: And Bob, if I had to, if I had to give a bold prediction for the ten years in the future, what we're looking at, I think our, at least in the physical therapy sense, our paradigm for research. Is going to change. I think our paradigm for research of, you know, does manipulation help? Um, does dry needling work? Why does it work? Our paradigm for research is going to be much less based on, hey, what's the, um, you know, two groups, one control, one variable. It's going to be much more based on clinical practice and, hey, we tried a, we tried a multimodal approach of manual therapy and exercise and dot 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 as we would treat an actual patient in the clinic. What were the outcomes? What was the success rate of that? And I think it's going to reflect much more of that. I think it's going to bring in the broader conversation. Right now, we are very segmented in our understanding. In terms of, through the research at least, we try and understand these issues through, if I did only this or only that or only the other thing. Well, we know from some studies that have started to address this, you know, it's manual therapy plus exercise. It's pain pain science theory plus exercise. And ultimately, we need to get the body moving. And if we get it moving, sometimes it needs extra tools, extra help, extra assistance along the way to get it moving. We can provide that. But the ultimate goal is to get moving. And Bob, I'm going to circle, full circle back to this stagnicity breeds pathology. I was just going
1: to say that.
0: If you're not (laughs) stagnant, brother, you're doing well.
1: You're right. I was was just going to say a wise man once told me stagnation leads to pathology, but you said it before me, like, so oh, I, that's that. a great quote.
0: And, you know, when you said wise man, it might be a wise-ass man, but uh, that works too, Bob.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I All right. If we were – I'm just going to just talk about um, – yeah, we, we pretty much talked about what I wanted to talk about, so – we I think we did a great job embodying man, this idea of placebo nocebo, and and how like the different I guess professions really interrelate. Um, yeah, is, is there anything Bob, else you want to add, Nick?
0: Bob, I enjoyed this episode. I think it was um, it was very thorough. It was rich. It was rich with bringing a lot of context to the table. And again, like any good conversation between you and I, we're going on a complete whim, um, as as it should be. Trusting our own intuition in her own language and attempting, creating the bold feat of attempting to translate that, not only for each other, but maybe making it, uh, audible and digestible and translatable for all those others out there as well.
1: Okay. Now we tried a new recording software today. I hope we've been talking for 35 minutes. I hope this records, but if we were to go back to, to last week, um, we do still have our accountability stuff and I, I tried my webinar. Um, this was my last attempt at a webinar and, and it didn't didn't go as well as I expected. So I was thinking of just scrapping that and setting a new goal for myself. Um, but I, I'm not sh- exactly sure what that new goal should be.
0: You know, Bob, I, I like that idea of, you know, you you've been very persistent with this. This has probably been, you know, way over your 10th webinar, probably over your 20th webinar. And it's having a harder time gaining traction on that. So I like that you're persistent. I like that you were talking pre on previous episodes about, Hey, nobody showed up or one person showed up. However, I still went through the whole process. I got the confidence. I got the repetition, I got the speech down. Um, so you're always improving on yourself and not just saying, Oh, I tried this. Nobody showed up and quitting early. Um, which would be very reasonable and fair to do, I think, but you tried to use each opportunity as a learning experience ahead of you.
1: Yeah. Um, there, there's this, a theory, and this can be like this whole other episode. Um, but, but I was talking with, with one of my professors, uh, Dr. Uh, Jason Cherry, and he was talking to me about, about this, this idea or this theory of, of the sunken shift fallacy. It's a fallacy, not a theory. Um. Are you familiar with that, by any chance?
0: Bob, I've heard the term, but you're gonna have to remind me. So
1: so basically, um, this the captain of the ship never jumps ship, right? Okay. So so like if even if the a ship is sinking, the captain the captain never never jumps, never leaves the ship, but dies with the ship. Um, So so that's where the fallacy comes in, right? Somebody is so invested in this thing um even when the ship is sinking, they're so invested in the thing. They're they're so like um they're so like into it. They don't realize it's sinking and and they're not willing to jump because they already put too much effort, too much um
0: financial investments, stuff in, yeah, yeah.
1: investments um into it. Um so 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 that's this thing that's looming in the back of my mind Well Bob
0: I've I've certainly made that mistake. Um Many times before, and I think you know you keep learning from it over time. But um, it's it's far easier to see in retrospect, uh, you know, hindsight twenty twenty, than it is um, than it is in the moment when you're invested in it.
1: Yes, so that could be a whole I, other episode. And, and
0: I would I would say going off of that for kind of a side tangent, a brief one that I've kind of come to in my ways, if there's at all an inclination, especially a repetitive inclination. That you are not fulfilled, that you are not happy, that you are not doing what you are meant to do in something that you are so deeply invested in that you truly believe you're putting in all your energy. There are plenty of times where I was in the, that situation, Bob, and I needed to, I needed to get myself out of that situation far before I did. Um, and so that's my advice for everybody out there: is if there is repetitive inclination that you need. That you are not being fulfilled by something you are putting all your energy into, and repeatedly, and not making strides to change that, you're in the wrong place.
1: Huh. That's the that's the sunken um, but but it, but it's hard to, to get out. What do you
0: oh absolutely that? absolutely yeah. and and it's the the more invested you are down that road, the harder it is to get out because I mean it feels like it's part of your identity. You've invested so much into it.
1: You're right. You're right. Wow. But but yes, yeah, that that's um, So
0: so Bob, let me ask you a question, my friend. In whether in some small or large way this journey that you've been on and the way that you're expressing this journey as a part of it through your webinars, that's part of your identity. It's your identity as a salesman, as a entrepreneur, um, as somebody trying to create his own brand and business. What do you need to do to more effectively honor that identity, because I'm a firm believer in you can't, if somebody's sitting on a four legged stool, you can't take a leg out, even if it's a bad leg, you can't take a bad leg out just to replace, just to not replace it. It's going to fall. So we've got to get you to take that kind of rotting, poor quality leg out, but put something else in its place.
1: That's a, so to... what was the question again? I'm sorry.
0: What do you need to do, what do you need to include in your life for, to replace this part of your identity that we're, uh, for lack of better words, about to to yank out, that is being ineffective, that is still serving you?
1: What do I need to replace it with?
0: Yeah. I think. Because I do not think that you can truly get rid of it. Effectively, you can you can get rid of it and say I won't do it. But I truly, Bob, do not believe that you can get rid of it and still feel content with chasing your goals until you replace it.
1: Here's what I think, Nick. I think this can be a whole nother like twenty or thirty minute conversation. And I think my goal for this week is to come up with that answer. And then next time we talk, we'll talk
0: about it. Good man, I love it.
1: Would you agree, Nick?
0: Bob, I would agree. And for the sake of our placebo conversation, I would agree because you agreed.
1: <laughs> oh, man. I I love this thing. This, this makes my day. All right. That's the plan. That's That's what's going to happen. Next time we talk, I'll have something. I'll have the answer to what will I replace or what would I potentially replace my – potentially broken stick that's maybe not broken that may just be burnt um with something else or not replaced with something else that was that was a, that was very confusing but but i i think maybe you understand it
0: a well, uh, a big question demands a big answer so you've got a, a big week ahead for yourself
1: <laughs> all right Nick. again i hope this records um and i'll see you next week